Good evening. We're going to be in Zephaniah tonight. If you want to flip over there, if you don't know where that is, just flip to Matthew and flip a few books back and you'll find Zephaniah, a small book tucked away at the end of the Old Testament. Um, if you looked in the bulletin, the title for the lesson was Restoration. And I thought about focusing in on chapter 3 of, of the end of chapter 3, which talks about hope and restoration. But the more I studied the book, the more I started pulling out that really the main theme of the book is what you see on the screen, the day of the Lord. And that's really what I want to focus on is really getting the main theme of the book across. And so that's the title that I decided to go with uh, this evening. Uh, I was listening to a couple of lessons this week. I just sometimes listen to lessons from other preachers just to get an idea of, of some things. And one, one preacher said that Zephaniah was the least known book in the entire Bible. I don't know where he got that from, if he was just saying that uh, just as a general thing. Um, but I think he's right. And if it's not the least known book, I think it's one of the least known books of the entire Bible. In fact, when I was studying for this, I had kind of forgotten what the book was about. I hadn't read it in quite a while. I'd read it several times in the past, but I, until I studied again this week, I had kind of forgotten it. Uh, it's a book that kind of goes unnoticed a lot. And so since that's the case, I do want to do a little bit of overview of the book so we can kind of get a, the context before we dive into some of the chapters here. So look at Zephaniah 1 verse 1 as a bit to kind of uh, set the, the stage for the book. Zephaniah 1 1, the word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushai, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. This gives us again a picture of the time frame here. Now a couple things by way of uh, introduction here. You notice the name Hezekiah there. All right, Hezekiah is King Hezekiah, one of the greatest kings of Judah. wasn't a perfect man, but in terms of you know, comparing to other evil kings, Hezekiah was a, was a great one. He followed the Lord for, for most of his life and wanted others to do the same thing. And so Zephaniah was a descendant of this great king. I believe it's great-grandson or great-great-grandson of, of Hezekiah but a descendant of King Hezekiah, this great king. And so Zephaniah is pointing out that he has royal blood. You know, he's kind of a part of that royal family. And uh, some people like to call him the, the royal prophet or something along those lines. He's a descendant of this great king Hezekiah. Also, he prophesied in the days of Josiah. Now, Josiah was also a really good king. And this would have been around uh, the mid to late 600s B.C. I believe 640 may have been the time when Josiah came along. And so Josiah is also a good king. So you might think, okay, he comes from Hezekiah who was a good king, or he descends from Hezekiah, good king. He's preaching during the days of a good king, Josiah. So things must have been going pretty good. And his message must have been pretty, pretty good, right? Not so much. Uh, in fact, I listen again to some lessons, and one guy says Zephaniah is the hottest book in the Bible. And what he meant by that was it's very fiery. A lot of judgment is, is really brought forth in, in the, the book of Zephaniah. And so um, Zephaniah really is, is trying to correct the people or, or tell them that, that something's coming, really. Uh, punishment's coming. And here's why. In between Hezekiah and Josiah were two of the worst kings of Judah. 
namely Manasseh and Ammon, two men who were just completely uh, just opposed to God, it seems. I mean, they just, they were really evil and brought forth evil practices, idolatry, and sinful practices of, of foreign nations, and they caused the people to stumble as well. And these, these men led for years. So with Manasseh and Ammon leading in between Hezekiah and Josiah, things kind of got off track. And Josiah was eight years old when he became king. So it wasn't immediately when Josiah became king that he in instituted his reforms, where he turned the nation around and reestablished the law. It took some time. And so a lot of people date Zephaniah's prophecies to the early part of Josiah's reign, before those reforms took place. And some actually say that it's possible that Zephaniah's preaching may have also been a catalyst for Josiah to implement changes. But here's the thing. Judah had gone so far and had sinned so many times. God had been so patient with them that he finally just says, it, my patience is up and judgment is coming. And that's really what this book is about. So um, just a couple of other things, major themes here in the book. We've already kind of uh, touched on this. It's the title of the lesson now, The Day of the Lord. That really spans all three chapters. Um, it goes into at least all three chapters. And the first part of chapter 3, Zephaniah is going to be talking about punishment coming uh, on the peoples from God. That's really the main point of the book. And then also um, restoration and hope for God's people. And that's at the end of the book in chapter 3, verses nine, verse 9 through 20. And that's really, that's not necessarily a unique uh, theme to Zephaniah. Other prophets talk about the day of the Lord. Joel was, is one that comes to my mind. I believe David touched on that several weeks ago. Um, and restoration and hope. We talked about, um, you know, Micah and, and even and, uh, Hosea. There's messages of hope. And so we see this throughout Zephaniah's book too. But man, the day of the Lord is a huge theme. And that's what we want to dive into first is the day of the Lord. We're going to be reading here in chapter 1. But I want you to understand, when we think about the day of the Lord, I think if you ask the average Christian, what's the day of the Lord? We'd probably say, okay, we're, it's the day when the Lord returns and we all stand before him in judgment. That's not necessarily wrong, right? Peter, Peter and Paul both say the day of the Lord's going to come like a thief in the night. And they're referring to when the Lord returns. We don't know when that's going to happen. Um, but in the prophetic books, the day of the Lord is not necessarily looking to the second coming and when we're all going to stand and give an account of, of our actions. In the prophetic books... The day of the Lord really is a day where God is going to intervene and judge the peoples. Maybe his people, it may be other nations, but God is going to come down with punishment in real time. And, and you look at the, the language here. Zephaniah says it's coming soon. It's about to happen. This is not something way off in the distant. This is about, about to take place. Punishment from God is really what we're looking at. So when you, when you see the day of the Lord, think there's some judgment coming from God amongst the people. And in Zephaniah, it is not a pretty picture for the people of Judah and surrounding nations. He talks about his people in chapter 1, foreign nations in chapter 2, gets back to his people in chapter 3. And so this is a, a very, again, fiery book. Some even have said it's kind of like the, the hellfire and brimstone book, if you will, because Zephaniah is just prophesying hey, judgment's coming. And so let's look at some of these um, verses here uh, in chapter 1 about the day 
of the Lord. Look in verse, verses 2 and following. I, I don't, okay, there's the PowerPoint. I didn't know if it went off. It's okay if we go back to the, the normal way and, and read through our Bibles, right? Um, so Zephaniah 1, 2, and 3. Look what it says. I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Zephaniah, I mean, it's just right off the bat, he's getting into this sweeping statement about God's judgment. Now, as I was studying this, it kind of, I saw some said that it kind of reminded them of the flood. You know, when God sent the flood during Noah's day, he removed everything from the face of the earth except for Noah and his family and the animals that he brought into the ark. Now, there was not a flood during Zephaniah's day or some calamity that destroyed every single thing on the earth I think what's happening here is this is just again a sweeping statement that when God is going to execute judgment on the wicked you won't escape it's going to be a total judgment and and punishment when God comes and brings his judgment we can't we're not going to escape it the wicked will not escape and you see that really play out through the book again chapter one he talks about his people are going to be judged chapter two several other nations are going to be judged. And so people from all over are about to face God's wrath because of their sins. And so Zephaniah starts off with a sweeping statement of God's judgment. Now, some also, I believe some translations, instead of saying, I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, it may say something like, I will remove all things from the face of the land. And so some people say it's referring to the land of Judah. That God is going to punish people in um, his people in the land of Judah. And they, they move on into the next verses which talk about Judah. And that may very well be the case. That when God brings punishment among his own people, they are not going to escape. It's going to be a thorough punishment. And so right off the bat, we see that something's coming from God. Now, we get into some specifics with the people of Judah starting in verse 4. Look at verse 4 through 6. So I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from the remnant of Baal from this place and the names of the idolatrous, idolatrous priests along with the priests and those who bow down on the housetops to the host of heaven and those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom and those who have turned back from following the Lord and those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of him. Those, those last, verse 6 is really, I think, the key here. Those who have turned back from following the Lord and those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of him. The people have just turned their backs from following God. And some of them are, are they're going to God and they're maybe, they're, they're, they're swearing by the Lord. But at the same time, they're swearing by these false gods, Milcom and Baal. And it's like, you can't have your interests divided here. You either, you're following God wholly or you're really not following him at all. And so there's, there's idol worship going on. I know we've talked about this several times within the, the minor prophets here. But Baal is mentioned here. Milcom, these false gods they're bowing down to. The, they're even bowing down to the stars. And, and, and these things are just a snare to them, these idols. They've been influenced by these pagan practices. And that means they have not truly been following God. They've turned back from following the Lord. They're not seeking him truly. They're not inquiring of him. And so this is one of the first things that he attacks is your, your idolatry. 
not truly following God fully, not inquiring of God alone. And so he's saying, I'm going to cut off the names of all these idolatrous priests. And really anybody who worships idols is going to be in trouble. Continue on in verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. Then it will come about on the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes, the king's sons, and all who clothe themselves with foreign garments. And I will punish on that day all who leap on the temple threshold, who fill the house of their Lord with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, there will be the sound of a cry from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar. For all the people of Canaan will be silenced. All who weigh out silver will be cut off. I will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit, who lay in their hearts, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. Moreover, their wealth will become plunder, and their houses desolate. Yes, they will build houses but not inhabit them, and plant vineyards but not drink their wine. Man, there's a lot to, to uncover here. Um, and so let's just kind of go down here just a little bit. This is very scary to me, verse 7, that God likens, the day, he says, the day of the Lord is near, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. God, uh, Zephaniah, really speaking again from God, likens the day of the Lord, this coming punishment, to a sacrifice. Now we know sacrifices in the Old Testament were, was a time of what? Of bloodshed. An animal was killed and the blood was spray, uh, sprayed on the altar and things were burnt up. This is not a good picture that a sacrifice is coming and God has consecrated his guest. And many believe that is a reference to the Babylonians, that God is going to bring his guest, the Babylonians, to punish his people. And it's going to be this sacrifice. It's again, that's a, a frightening picture to me. And so that's kind of the, the, the first part here. And then he gets into talking about several different people that are going to be Punish. He says in verse 8, he's going to punish the princes and the, the king's sons. These are people, part of the, the royal family. I'm sure Zephaniah knew these, these people. Going to punish the princes, the king's son, all who clothe themselves with foreign garments. These people had gone so far as not just worshiping their gods, but they're starting to adopt their, their wear, their attire. They're, they're, they're adapting to the pagan culture so far as to wear their clothing to look like these foreign peoples. And God's saying, no, that's, that's not what I want. So those, those people are going to be punished. I will punish on that day all who leap on the temple threshold. Now, this is something that I struggled to find, uh, you know, a, a consistent answer on. And there's two main uh, interpretations that I found of this. Number one was that this was a pagan practice that the people had adopted. In 1 Samuel 5, verse 5, there's something mentioned just like this, leaping on a temple threshold in 1 Samuel 5, 5, but it's in reference to the Philistines and their false god, Dagon, and the temple of Dagon. And so some believe this is some type of pagan practice that, that they had adopted. Some, uh, like Albert Barnes and, and I believe Kyle and Dillich also in their commentaries, don't go for that interpretation. They connect the second part of the verse of verse 9 says, who fill the house of their Lord with violence and deceit. And the word temple is actually not in the original text. 
So it would say, I will punish on that day all who leap on the threshold and fill their masters or their Lord's house with violence and deceit. And they basically say that this is a picture of people going into people's homes, storming into people's homes with violence and deceit and fill, taking things from them, stealing from them and filling their master's house with the things that they've stolen. Regardless of what interpretation we take there, it's not good either way. And so God's saying, I'm going to punish them. And so because of this punishment, verses uh, 10 and 11 and 12, uh, verses 10 and 11, really, there's going to be wailing in Jerusalem. In different sections of Jerusalem, there's going to be a great cry because of this punishment. But I want us to pay attention to verse 12. It will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. Evidently, there are people now in, in Jerusalem amongst God's own people. Imagine that amongst God's very own people who are saying, God's not going to do anything. God's not going to do anything good for us. And he's certainly not going to punish us. So I'm just, I'll just live however I want to live. I'll just do my, my own thing. I'll just be complacent. I'll just become stagnant because God's not really there. I mean, they'd chalk God up to just, you know, like any other idol, it seems. God's not really going to act. He's not going to do anything. And so God says, oh, no, I'm going to do something. And so you see the Lord, they say, will not do good or evil. Well, their wealth will become plunder. Their houses are going to become desolate. They're going to build houses. They're not going to inhabit them. They're going to plant vineyards, but they're not going to drink their wine. So God is going to do something. Now, by way of application, well, let's, let's finish out the chapter actually real quick, and then we'll, we'll come back to some application. Just very quickly, look at the way the day of the Lord is described here at the end of the chapter. Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord in it, the warrior cries out bitterly, a day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and uh, the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on that day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. You see why this is called the, the most fiery book in the Bible. I mean, it's just coming down. Why? Because they have sinned against the Lord. And I know some people would say, man, this seems kind of intense from God, and, and maybe too much, but... We don't, I don't think we realize just how long God had dealt with his people, had been so compassionate and patient with them. We're talking about hundreds of years of unfaithfulness. And finally, God says, all right, punishment's coming. Punishment's coming, and it's not going to be pretty. A day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, darkness and gloom, clouds and thick darkness, trumpet and battle cry. It's going to be a terrible day when God's wrath is poured out amongst his people. And certainly it was when Nebuchadnezzar came on them and wiped them out eventually and took many uh, into exile. And so the day of the Lord is a great theme within this book. By way of application here, the day of the Lord is coming. And I know we mentioned this a few minutes ago, but for us... There is a day coming. 
a day when Jesus Christ is going to return and we are all going to stand before the Lord in judgment. Are you ready for that day? We only get one shot at this life. When Jesus returns, when the Lord returns and we stand before him in judgment, it's not, okay, I'll give you another chance. You have another life. Go down there and live and, and we'll, go, we'll come do this later. No, this is it. This is our shot right now. And so we have to be so careful how we're living because the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord when he returns. Look at 2 Peter 3 verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Peter in this context is dealing, dealing with who he calls scoffers. People who are scoffing, ah, the day of the Lord's not coming. What, is God really going to come back? I mean, everything's just kept going the same way since the beginning of creation. Where, where's the sign of his coming? And Peter tells them in this chapter, oh, he's coming. Uh, the day, uh, one day with the Lord is like a thousand years, a thousand years as a day. And he gives all these examples. God is going to come back. He's patient towards us. And then he says, he's going to come like a thief in the night. Thieves don't say, hey, I'm coming over at 2 a.m. You better get ready. They're going to come unannounced so they can, they can take you by surprise and fulfill their mission to get something from you. God's going to come at a time when we, we don't expect, we don't know. And so we have to be ready. Are you prepared for his coming? If you're not, we need to make that right tonight. We have to be prepared for the coming of the Lord, because it could happen at any moment. And that means we got to get other people prepared for the, the second coming. Our day of the Lord, if you will, the ultimate day of the Lord is coming. Are you ready? That's the first application I want to point out. Secondly, complacency is a real, real danger. Remember he says, he calls out those people who are stagnant, who were saying, ah, oh, God's not going to do anything. He's not going to do anything good, and he's not going to do anything bad for, towards us. They were stagnant. And listen, maybe, maybe that's not exactly how it plays out for us. That, that we, we don't maybe sit there and say, well, God's not going to do anything, so I'll just sit back and relax and do, do my own thing. Some people probably do that. Maybe that's not the, the way it plays out for you. Maybe for, for some of us, it's we've been Christians for a long time. We've been coming to services for, for years. We've been coming to Bible class for years. We've been doing the, the trying to follow God, and maybe we've just hit a lull and we've just kind of been at a, a, a level playing field we haven't been growing like we should we become stagnant I don't know maybe there's I think the comforts of life we have so many things conveniences that make us comfortable you know modern conveniences like the like our phones refrigerators air conditionings microwave you can name it things that make life so convenient and we get real comfortable here and we can you know kind of be so comfortable that we don't break out of our shell and grow and do the things that God has called us to do, like tell someone about him or, or serve somebody like David was talking about this morning. We can become complacent, and that's a real, real danger. Considering our, if we consider our lives as Christians, it really should be a growth until we leave this life. There should never be a time where we get to a plateau and say, you know what, I've made it. I'm where I need to be. I don't need, any, I don't need this anymore to read anymore or pray anymore or come to service anymore. I've made it there. I'm good to go. It always needs to be growth. We can always learn. And I come to books like Zephaniah, and I learn so much when I study them. 
It's amazing when you crack open the Bible just how much you can learn, even after years of studying it. Complacency is a real danger, and that's something that, that God doesn't take lightly. Somebody who just sits back and relaxes is not really fulfilling his mission for them and not really doing what he's called them to do. And so let's not let things of this life make us complacent, make us too comfortable, or we're not continuing to grow. I've really run out of time here. But I do want to point to the end of the book. Just We'll, we'll skip uh, the next uh, slide, I believe, here. But I do want to point to the restoration and hope that Zephaniah calls out here at the end of the book. There's a lot of judgment. In chapter 3, he, he goes back to his people. And it's like, surely I thought you would repent, but you didn't. And, and he calls them out some more at the first part of the chapter. But the second part of the chapter... And I, what I want to go to, uh, gentlemen, with the slides is the, the verses 12 uh, through 20. And I will just read some of these verses here in chapter 3. Look what it says here. But I will leave among you a humble and lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths. For they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. And that day it will be said of Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feast. They came from you, O Zion. The reproach of exile is a burden on them. Behold, I'm going to deal at that time with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcasts, and I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the face of the earth. At that time, I will bring you in, even at that time when I gather you together. Indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. I think that's a beautiful way to end the book, that there is... There's a very fiery book with a lot of judgment coming. But he ends by saying, yes, you're going to be punished. Yes, there's going to be difficult times. But God is going to restore your fortunes. And God is going to dwell among you again. He's going to bring you back. And yes, there would be exile for a while, but he'd bring them back. And we can read about that. How the people were brought back from exile, rebuilt the temple. And things were not necessarily the exact same, but God would be their God. And they would be his people. And he was going to be their king. And Jerusalem would be established again as a place of glory. And there would be triumph there. A beautiful picture amidst judgment. And all I wanted to point out here is this idea that there is still hope and restoration today. There's still hope for you and me. There's still hope for our world. That even though there's sin, there's, there's problems in our world, the Lord is still mighty to save. God still provides hope and restoration amidst the problems, amidst the sin. We can be that light to the nations and tell them there's hope only through Jesus Christ. And I wanted to point to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The Lord is so patient, and he's giving us time to repent. He's giving us time to talk to our neighbor 
to come back, to, to be restored, to come into God's family, to be a part of his people, and where there could be joy and triumph. There is still hope and restoration available today. Just like it was for God's people, even in the midst of judgment, they still had this hope to cling to. If you're missing that tonight, we want you to come forward and make it right. Hope is still available. Restoration is still available for anybody who's wandered away. God is still patient towards us. He doesn't want anyone to perish. Don't let your opportunity to slip to make it right tonight. And let's tell others. Let's be that city on a hill that cannot be hidden, telling the world that Jesus saves today. If you have any need, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.